Coming up next, the bookening watches and reads The Hollow Crown. Hey everybody, Nathan Alberson here. Nathan Alberson, joined by his good friend Brandon Chastain. Hey. Scholar who's a baller of reading. Yep. And his other good friend, and also Brandon's good friend, Pastor Jacob Menzel, the pastor who's a master of reading. Hey. Today, guys, we're talking about the old bard, the immortal bard of Stratford-upon-Avon. We sure are. Again, this is our fifth context about Shakespeare. Yeah, we've done it quite a bit. We've done Shakespeare a lot, and we'll continue to do Shakespeare a lot because he's arguably an influential, important guy in the history of letters. A little bit. And of writing. And pretty talented, I would say. Pretty talented. He's okay. Mildly. He's all right. Brendan, what's your favorite Shakespeare sonnet? My favorite Shakespeare sonnet? Yeah. Probably 116. 116? Yeah. Which one is that? Let me not to the marriage of true minds and mid impediments. Ah, that's a good one. Love is not love that alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Well, somebody's showing off. Oh, no, it's never fixed mark. It's Jake. He's, he's, he's juggling over shaking. there. <laughs> Jake's not really juggling. Brandon's the one that's showing and off. Does that start of every warning bark? Who's worth it? Although his height be taken. Love's not times full. The rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickles come as come. Alters not with his vain hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be and upon me proved, I never written or no man ever loved. You're welcome. <laughs> that's a good one. And you're both looking at your computers. <laughs> Jake, your favorite Shakespeare sonnet. Uh, I don't know. I wasn't looking them up like you are <laughs> so that I could have any answer to the question. I actually encourage people to look up Sonnet 130. My, my, my mistress eyes are nothing like the sun. That is my favorite, I think. because Shakespeare's just like... He's being all tongue-in-cheek. He's all tongue-in-cheek and fun. It's pretty funny. He's like, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked, red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes is there more delight than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare as any she belied with false compare. It's a good one. Isn't that nice? Oh, so sweet. It's really sweet. Very nice. And it's nice and ironic. And he's like, she's just cool. She's my mistress. I love her. Yeah. It doesn't matter if she's not some poetic goddess. Do I have to lie about her to love her? Yep. And he's making fun of Shakespeare. making fun of Shakespeare before anybody else could. So He got to it first. Yep. And making fun <laughs> of the sonnet form and making fun of all the hackneyed cliches that poets even then were using. So I think that one's really fun. Uh, I don't have it memorized, like, old scholar who's a baller over there. Hey. Well, get on it, Nathan. Well, I think, I think Psalm 130 is a great intro to our Shakespeare context and our old tropes about Shakespeare. Psalm 130? Are you going to read did Psalm, I say 130? Psalm 130? You did, you you did, did. say Psalm 130. <laughs> sonnet, to... sonnet, sonnet, okay. 130. Sonnet. I thought you were going to trump us <laughs> with our sonnets. With By like, pulling out the Bible, yeah, I'm the pastor, baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sonnet 130. Because, you know, it's all this, like... Eh, you know, 
It's fun. I'm having fun over here. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know. Hey, guys, I'm having what's, fun over what's here. What's great about her isn't that she, you know, walks the heavens like a goddess. She walks the earth. And, you know, she's still pretty great. Yeah. And I have a feeling. Down to earth sort of vibe. Yeah. And I have a feeling we're going to be saying some similar stuff about Shakespeare. Probably. Yeah, that's why, what I was trying to do. You correctly <clears throat> figured out what I was trying to do for us. Good job, Jake. Get it set Thanks. up. Knock it out of the park there. You're like the Shakespeare of podcast tradi- tr- transitions. Thanks. And speaking wow. of transitions, <laughs> Brennan's a woman. <laughs> oh, Nathan. <laughs> no. <laughs> speaking of transitions, let's transition to a little part of the show I like to call the contextual Texan. Hey. And what happens in that is Brennan comes riding up on a horse. <laughs> he hops off the horse <sighs> with a jangle of his spurs, <laughs> throws his hat in the air. <laughs> And fires his guns. <laughs> <laughs> and lets out a hail and hearty. Yeehaw! And, and I should say Brennan's from Texas. That's why he's doing all those things. He is also, though, contextual. And he's going to provide some context for Shakespeare using his scholar-like powers. All right. So, Brennan, what do we need to know about Shakespeare? Let's conjure those scholar-like powers, guys. We've done this context now for five years. So people should just go back and listen to those episodes and give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, we've done like, well, we have done this for five years and we've kind Mm -hmm. of got what we think of Shakespeare down. And so we'll just go over the basics there. Um, In general, not a whole lot is known about Shakespeare. We know about his time. We know when he lived, you know, between 1564 and 1616. Mm-hmm. He was during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and then in the early part of the reign of King James, who came after oh, Elizabeth. And so he would have been Elizabethan mainly, but also a little bit of the Jacobean court there. But we know of him through his will, and we know of him through references to his plays from other playwrights and, and other like theater goers at the time, in fact. One of the only, so what's interesting about, well, not the only thing that's interesting about these plays, but. Um, <laughs> the only thing that's interesting about <laughs> yeah. the Shakespeare plays. The, the, one of the interesting facts about the plays we're doing this time, which is Henry VI and also Richard III, right? Mm-hmm. Henry VI, all three parts, and yep. Richard III. As, as far as scholars have been able to determine, these are his earliest plays. Oh, really? Even yeah. before uh, old Titus Andronicus? Yeah, and- so these are, these are, at least some scholars put these as his first plays. Hmm. And uh, one of the reasons is because a famous playgoer at the time wrote about seeing a Henry 5J, which most think is Henry VI, and that would have put it at least in the 1580s. One of the other interesting facts about it is that most scholars think that Henry VI was one of Shakespeare's collaborations, that he actually wrote it along with Thomas Nash and maybe even Chris Marlowe. All three parts or just the first part? Especially the first part. Mm -hmm. that. It kind of, but um, according to this journal or this journal entry, this person made it actually made quite a bit of money, and so it would probably have been fairly foundational in turning Shakespeare into the celebrity that he did become with his plays at the time. It was a crowd pleaser, and it was also young Shakespeare. Is and I, it'll be interesting. I haven't watched The Hollow Crown yet, and it's been a long time since I've read the Henry the Sixth plays mm-hmm. or Richard the Third. Richard the Third is kind of his quintessential villain. Yeah. He's as Dickensian a villain as you're going to get with Shakespeare. Yep. And so it'll be interesting to think through, like, can you see... So Henry V is like smack dab in the middle of his career. 
And so the early Henry plays are more mature in many ways. The the plays written about the earlier Henrys. Yeah, the early yeah the plays written about the earlier Henrys are Shakespeare's more mature work mm-hmm. than the later Henry. The plays written about the later Henrys, right? Which makes it a little bit confusing, but it'll be kind of fun to watch and see if we can tell that. Well, the way the Hollow Crown, I'll just go ahead and say because I've watched the first installment. The way they solve that problem is they take three Shakespeare plays: Henry the Sixth, Part One, Two, and Three. They condense them into two movies they just cut and condense a lot i think to try and burn through that material quickly it looks like they're agreeing with conventional wisdom which is this isn't really shakespeare's greatest so we're going to pull what's interesting and set up the story and what we're really going to do is save our fireworks for getting benedict cumberbatch to come in and do richard the third now that said i really like what they did with uh, I, i enjoyed the movie a lot but does so he plays Richard the Third, mm-hmm. Benedict Cumberbatch. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I guess yeah. he's a good choice. Have you guys watched that one? I've not watched that one yet. I haven't got that far. I'm only about halfway done with part one. Okay. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's good. And old Shakespeare had a way with words, but Yeah. You can see how they're burning through the material quickly. I think there's like a whole thing with Joan of Arc, which Shakespeare spent a lot of time on this character and it's kind of weird and they just solve that problem by quickly going really fast it's probably the right choice but uh, we'll have we'll have lots more time see joan give a speech you see joan kill uh what's his face uh what is his face certain name starts with a t talbot talbot yeah Yeah. Yeah. you see joan kill talbot and then you see joan burn at the stake right that's it that's all you get at joan you don't get as i think shakespeare gives you like joan actually challenging the dolphin to a duel or something like that like there's a bunch of setup with her that they just don't even bother with they just cut that out yeah that's probably wise I, I think it probably was actually i think the way to make this work is to in that format at least was to just emphasize momentum okay um anyway i'm sorry to derail what you were saying no um like i said we don't know a whole lot about shakespeare but we do know he was born in stratford upon avon his dad was a fairly prominent figure within the city he was one of the council members, and but it didn't mean that he had much high privilege. He wasn't like a courtly, he didn't have a courtly upbringing. So a lot of the s- stuff that you will see like in Henry VI, his imaginings of what it would be like to be in the court, it was really just his imagination. Mm-hmm. Later on in life, when he got a lot of success and his um, acting troupe was, became uh, patronized, not in the sense that we use the word, but- People look down on yeah, them. <laughs> they were literally patronized by Queen Elizabeth and other prominent figures of her court. He would get direct access to kind of the- The um, pageantry. The pageantry, the-, the mask and the balls and stuff that surrounded her court. And I think that, it, I don't know, I think there's probably then more of an accurate flavor of what that would be like. So like when the Dauphin sends the tennis balls to Henry V, you mm-hmm. know, that and the t- Henry V speeches and stuff like that. I think that a lot of the color are with Hamlet, with the court, how mm-hmm. that play opens up, or King Lear. I think a lot of that comes about because he actually got direct access and got to see it. And see so the his, machinations of a political can, machine yeah, working and all that. So you can see Shakespeare developing as an artist in the sense that he's he can use kind of what he had access to to give more color to his later plays. While, my, if memory serves, Henry VI, Richard III, they're more character-driven. Like, mm-hmm. Henry III basically is just a character study of Richard III. I meant Rich, Henry Richard III, <laughs> not Henry III. Yeah. I'm getting really confused with my names here. It w- but it would make sense, you know, like, Dickens wrote what he knew. Mm-hmm. He wrote a lot about courts early in his career. And then it, as he got more familiar with London and stuff and other things like that, his 
books took on some more character. Oh, you mean courts like with judges and gavels? Yeah, not and like stuff. No, not, 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 yeah. not okay. now we're using like courts in many yeah. ways too. People are gonna have to juggle lots of different terms here. Just anyways, he probably would have gone to one of the small local schools in town that would have been for wealthier merchant class kids. He probably wasn't in the boarding school, but in the sense that he could have just walked to the school. He didn't have to board there. Um, but we, most scholars think that he would have learned Latin and he would have also been introduced to like the histories of England there. And he would have also been introduced to like Petrarch and stuff. So I think it was Hollinshed's history and also, is that right? Hollinshed, yeah. That sounds, and sounds uh, like Petrarch's, uh, the lives of the great Romans and Greeks. And so why that's important is because what he would learn in his childhood from these books would basically give him the material for all of his plays, right? And so um, we know that he married fairly young. Can I ask a question about what you just said before you move on? Yeah. Would he have had, do we know, access to reference materials? Like would it just have been what he was taught in the school and then that had to stick with him and he had to draw on it from memory as he wrote these things? Or would he have been able to look at books and he would have been able to look at books. I'm pretty sure. Right. Um, I mean, there's no way to know that for absolutely certain, mm-hmm. but the printing press was already a thing at the time. So books were, and um, they weren't just for the, they weren't just the elite completely for the elite. They were more for, I mean, so even he would, part of his success would be because you could have the quartos, the folio editions of his plays printed and put out in these little shops and you could go and buy them for like a penny or whatever, or whatever, a farthing, whatever. Well, the, if he had wealthy, Patrons, he would have had access, would have been able to appeal for anything that he would need yeah. in order to continue to write and mm-hmm. create these plays. So you go to your wealthy patron and ask for access to their library or ask them to get you, you know, whatever it is you want or whatever you need as a part of their patronage of you, I assume is what you, it's what I would do if I were Shakespeare. Yeah, I'm imagining that he would. Well, especially if you're writing a nationalistic propaganda piece, like I think people would want to give you access to whatever you needed. Yeah, to... and, the queen, and the queen's your one of your patrons, right? Yeah, so. you would imagine that he would. I mean, that, but that's what's so fascinating about Shakespeare is here he is, one of the most prominent literary figures ever. And let almost all of what we do as, as far as his life goes is, is speculation. It's mm-hmm. imagining. Like we know how authors would have dealt with this writing these plays and we assume he probably would have but it's just speculation which of course i mean we may as well just get this out of the way has led to a lot of people speculating that shakespeare didn't even write his plays mm-hmm. right and so that's we at the bookening don't hold to those theories and we've dealt with them in the past no, i'm just gonna say it again those theories seem to me to be elitist to be snobby to be mean-spirited very small. it's very small because what they assume is that some dude couldn't just come along and have this kind of imagination. And so, so they want to give it to someone of note. Yeah. And so what you have to know is, as a person, it's carpenter from Galilee, couldn't come along and have some teaching to upset the ruling classes. But even in a little small town, like Stratford upon Avon at the time, he would have had access to the mystery plays and to other like festival plays that would have taken place within that little community. And so his love of storytelling and theater, it could have been excited by that. And then also um, at school, reading these books and having access to these sorts of stories. It doesn't take, uh, for a boy who has the genius that Shakespeare had, you know, he could have taken that material and ran with it. Mm -hmm. And then you had, obviously you would have had the primary fodder for people who grow to be 
great novelists and storytellers like that, which is just other people, right? He would have other people to observe. And he was a keen observer and a keen discerner and would have had his father and had all these other men in the town that he could have watched and learned from. And and so we see this with, so Jane Austen is a, a good parallel because she didn't have a big world that was offered to her, right? that mm-hmm. she had access to. And yet she had an extraordinarily rich cast of characters. Mm-hmm. And also Dickens to an extent, because he only, he was an or he had the poor background. He, he didn't have access to a lot of things that other children his age would have had. And yet these people just have an, an incredible ability to watch people and observe and to make generalizations, but also distinctions and discernments about human character and then put them into their own creations. Right. And so all that to say, it would not, it's not out of the realm of possibility because we see it all the time with other novelists and writers we've read in the bookending to think that a little boy from Stratford-upon-Avon could grow up to be Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to be Francis Bacon. He didn't have to be the Earl of Oxford, right? And the people who make those arguments, they are, it's, a, it's elitist. It's um, mm-hmm. the type of the William F. Buckley's. I don't think he made that argument, but it's the guys who would follow his tradition with, with well, you know, you need the Harvard and Yale education. That's what makes you well, able to- Buckley might have- I don't, yeah. I mean, he, he could have, I don't know. His disciple, uh, what's his face? Joe Sobrin certainly made yeah, that argument. They all come from that same, you, well, you talked about it. They, came from, they come from that T.S. Eliot, new conservatism Yeah, so that's, movement. that's who I was thinking of, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have these arguments that are made, but what they're, it's an elitist tradition where they think that only people who go and have this certain form of education, the highest form of education that go through that rigorous training of the mind, they're the only ones that would have access to language that beautiful, access to thoughts that grand, and would able to then be able to generalize them and put them into plays. Here's the fact, though. I have went to graduate school. I had a lot of professors who had that wonderful education, and guess how many of them have written amazing novels? Not a single one of them, right? And um, it's often the opposite, it turns out. T.S. Eliot, and his stuff is weird anyways, his poetry. It's often the opposite happens is that like Harold Bloom tried to write a novel oh boy, and it's, it's absolutely crazy and pretty bad. They become too, they, they think they're too smart for their own good. I'm not going to say they become too smart for their own good. They think they're too smart for their own good. And so therefore they think that they can create what Shakespeare did. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that it's not really about the PhD. It's about these other things. It's about just being, I think it's one of God's great glorious mysteries of the way that he's made the world is you can't reverse engineer greatness. Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot on the booking about the importance of diligence and hard work and in, in any creative endeavor, but there is that 1% spark of inspiration that you just can't. And timing. And timing. And, and opportunities and relationships. Luck, and a million other providence, factors. whatever you want to call it. It, it, yeah. it is just like God just gives it to some people and he doesn't give it to other people. And that is that end of discussion, period. And so, yeah, with opportunity, Shakespeare had it because he was a man who was born at the exact right moment to become Shakespeare. Steve Jobs was born at the exact right moment to become Steve Jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so had Shakespeare not been Shakespeare, would there have been another one? I mean, we don't know because he was Shakespeare. Like you had Chris Marlowe, you had, you had Thomas Nash and Kidd and other writers who were doing, and Ben Johnson, other important playwrights at the time as well. But historically, this was like the English language was ripe for someone to come and become a Shakespeare. Because what you had had is you had had William the Conqueror in 1066 came, took Anglo-Saxon, mixed it with some French influence, and you got, you know, this cauldron bubbling for the next 500 years that would eventually become 
Renaissance English and then Elizabethan English, right? He took it out of, and so it would, you would slowly see the evolution of the English language through Middle English, which is a fun fact that Old English is Anglo-Saxon. Most people think Old English is like the Canterbury Tales. Mm-hmm. That's Middle English, right? And then it would change into Modern English by the time we get to Shakespeare. But it was such a fresh, vibrant new language that like all the metaphors, all the, all the ideas and everything that were out there to be found and created, all it took was one exceptionally brilliant mind and one exceptionally keen observer. So I keep going back to what Robert Penn Warren says about, Shakespeare, uh, about poetry as a way of seeing the world, right? And I think that men like Shakespeare, that's, what that's their talent, is they have a way of like absorb. Tolstoy had it too, a way of absorbing everything around them, Jane Austen as well, and then putting it out into art, right? Mm-hmm. And so you mix that then with a love of craft and a fine sense of it, and you get these amazing writers and artists. And so that's a world where we're all looking through Shakespeare's eyes all the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's what he was. So he was at the right moment at the right time. The English language was ready for him. The English culture was ready for him because up until that point, plays were kind of on the fringe. The church would do some mystery plays. Can you explain mystery play? You've used that twice now. Yeah. Well, you had the mystery plays, which were meant to show, they were like allegorical plays that were meant to show some allegorical truth about Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the church would often put them on, or you would have players put them on, but they were allowed and acceptable because they were- They're explicitly um, didactic and yes. moralistic. Yeah. So the Goodman plays, the Goodman, Pierce Plowman, but that's more of a, uh, a, a poem, but still it would have been kind of in the same tradition. And you had some plays that were kind of getting back to, because of the Renaissance, kind of to the, like, the Greek and Roman roots as well. You had those things seeping in. And those influences coming back, but they weren't really acceptable yet, right? But some scholars would have been aware of like the Oedipus Rex and things like that and structure that those plays would have brought to theater. And you can't discount the influence that the Renaissance had. Petrarch would have given us the sonnet form, right? And then through Surrey, it came into the English language as well. You had all those influences happening at the same time. So poetic forms were coming in thanks to the Renaissance. Um, a love of theater had kind of survived even through the Middle Ages and was getting kind of a new life thanks to the Renaissance. The English language, thanks to the courtly tradition of like um, Eleanor of Aquitaine, people like that, what had uh, ripened and become ready for Shakespeare. Then also you can't discount the fact that Queen Elizabeth and her father and the Henrys and stuff, they had made England ripe for sort of globalism and also for London becoming one of the major capital city cities of the world. And so economic growth in London at the time was huge. You had trade, you had growth in markets, and money was just pouring into London. And so what happens is when people get a lot of money, you know, even the lowest class people have some spending capital. And so what happened is they wanted to use their spending capital on things that would entertain them. And so what happened is you had the Thames at that time split London and on the west side of the Thames, uh, where you kind of had the swampy lands, you had theaters start to pop up where people would entertain the masses and everybody would go over to the, that side of the river. Because it wasn't allowed and on the because other Because it wasn't side. allowed inside the city proper. And so you could have less censorship over there. And that allowed for kind of this theatrical life, kind of the underbelly of the city to start growing and developing so that Shakespeare, as he got success with like Henry VI and would move to London and you know, he would have that success with Nash and Marlowe, as far as we can tell, that's kind of the biographical trajectory of his life. He would put together a a troop of men, they would establish the Globe Theater together, and they would become a smashing success. 
smashing, as they would say in Britain, right? Yeah, and so it was just ready for him. And so um, one, one of the fun things when I'm teaching students about Shakespeare is to actually show them what the Globe Theater would have been like. You know, it would have been like a table projecting out into the middle of like a mosh pit. So everybody could actually come and literally like put their hands and arms on the stage around the actors. And so one of the lines in Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar says, you know, I could actually smell their breath, like of the people telling him to become Caesar. Mm-hmm. And like it nauseates him. And you get the sense that that's kind of Shakespeare saying, yeah, it's kind of like around the Globe Theater stage. You can smell the breath of the people. They're so close to you. And it's just a lot more pedestrian than I think we imagine. When people think Shakespeare, they think like ballroom dress. You're up in- High you're, art. Yeah, high art. And you're being quiet and you're respecting the great bard and, the, and on stage. But that would have been nothing like a real Shakespeare play. All classes would have been mixed together. You would have had your- tiers up above where like the nobility would have sat and stuff if they would even deign to come, but at least your merchant class would have been able to purchase tickets away from the crowds, but everybody would have been there. And in between takes, even in between acts, even with like King Lear, you would have had men come out and cross-dressing and dancing on stage. And it would have been a wild raucous time at the, at the globe, much, probably much more similar to what you would imagine Boz Lerman could imagine. <laughs> Mm-hmm. As, as far as a Shakespeare production. Yeah, I than, keep thinking of Moulin Rouge. Yeah, mm. then what, yeah, that's, I don't think that's too far off. And so, so that's kind of the background as to what it would have been like at, at Shakespeare's time and what would have given rise to Shakespeare even becoming who he became. Now, we, uh, I mentioned the bard and the way we approach him now. And that is one thing that we always like to point out in these episodes is the fact that the way that we look at art and the way that we look at the artist is absolutely it. So if people are on Instagram, I've been doing some poetry readings and I don't know when this is coming out, but I did like our third week of it was I read the romantics. Mm-hmm. And if you follow us on patreon.com forward slash the bookening, you got my video where I kind of gave my spiel on the romantics and the problem with them. And it's that they gave rise to this idea of the genius and they took like the old idea of Homer and the muses and they said, well, we have this divine inspiration, right? We have access to this truth that no one else has. We have genius that allows us to, um, like Keats famously said, truth is beauty and beauty is truth. Or beauty is truth and truth is beauty, right? Through art, we can access these truths and wonders about the world that no one else can. And then William Walt Whitman in America, not William Walt Whitman, but Whit- Walt Whitman in America would take the idea and say that the poet is the priest of the world now. We retroactively want to read that back on the Shakespeare and think that he must have seen himself that way. And so you get that crazy movie Shakespeare in Love or mm-hmm. whatever, right? Where they try to think of him as the tormented genius mm-hmm. artist, right? He's like a rock star or something. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as we can tell, that's just absolutely not true. Um, the way that Shakespeare would have looked at himself, and there's evidence of this in the way that he wrote his plays and the fact that his plays have variations. Right. That's what part of the difficulty of being a Shakespeare scholar is deciding which folio you want to use. Mm -hmm. Because one of the ways we get, so one of the ways we have his plays is that guys would go and they would watch the play and then they would go back and they would try as best they could to write down what they had heard. Those are the less trustworthy of the quarter folios. Then you actually had the notes he would use, like the liner notes or the, the play notes for his actors. And those could change from performance to performance. You could see it, it was like a living thing that it mm-hmm. would, he would adapt to like the performance. This worked. Oh, maybe this, this joke didn't, didn't land. It's gone. Yeah. And he probably even had like some of his actors change things as well. He would have most likely been open to that. 
because um, oh, this just, actor improv this line and it was great. Or this guy sure is really good at this kind of thing, so I guess this character is going to go this direction. Yeah, yeah. Because of that, there's reason to believe that Shakespeare was much more approached his art and much more from the level of craft than like this was divine inspiration and no one ever touches a Shakespeare line, right? He didn't see himself as the way we see him, Shakespeare, right? He saw himself as writing plays that were meant to entertain the people that were in the globe that night. He saw himself as a businessman and he adapted to the performances at the time. And so he was um, much more along the lines of the way people saw art at the time, which was as a craft and not as this divinely inspired gift from the muses, right? And so there's more of a humility to a Shakespeare play. And I think it really adds a lot to Shakespeare to realize that this is, this is the way you should be looking at it and not the other way. For one, it allows you to realize, well, if something's not quite working in Shakespeare, he probably would have been fine and admitted it himself, right? You don't have to see him as every single thing that Shakespeare ever did was perfect, right? Um, if you don't like Titus Andronicus, fine. Maybe he didn't. <laughs> Maybe it didn't work for him. But he still needed to put on something and yeah. that's what he came out with. And so, and he was still extremely good at it, right? There's no doubt his influence is immense. He, give, he gave us quite a few of the metaphors that we use today in our English language. Like one of my favorites is he, so we had I, the word I, and then we also had the word ball. He decided to put them together. Now we have eyeball, right? Mm-hmm. And so just those simple things like that. So he's extraordinarily creative with language, extraordinarily creative with poetry. And it's no doubt that he has had the most influence over um, English literature and the English language than any artist has ever had. But he didn't set out like thinking, this is who I'm going to be, right? His sonnets shared in some of that thinking and tradition, but that was because that's the way that the sonneteers wrote those poems, mm-hmm. right? But it's, it's, uh, it's a stretch to think that he wrote every play thinking, I'm going to be remembered as Shakespeare. In fact, the only re- reason we remember him as Shakespeare is because two of his friends, Hemings and Condell, took his folio and uh, in 1623, after his death, I think it was 1623, probably some of them is going to say, well, it was actually 1621. One star. One star. <laughs> That's a joke because somebody actually did that one year. Over Shakespeare uh, context. Over Shakespeare, Shakespeare, yeah. Because yeah. you said that Elizabeth died, died. in 1613 instead of 1603. 1603. Yeah, so. So from the top of your head, you gave yeah. a date within 10 years of her death. And the person it was, was like the worst thing I could have done. <laughs> so One star. One yeah, star. One star. And so he's remembered because they took those volumes and they made the effort to get them published and to, and to have him remembered. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting seeing how history plays out like that. It's, it's interesting to think, had they not done that, would we even know Shakespeare beyond just a footnote in history, maybe one or two plays that we would read in history class. Who didn't get that treatment and yeah, what, what great stuff was lost. Yeah. You wonder those sorts of things, but it's, it's just more of a fun thought experiment than it is anything else because we have Shakespeare, right? But yeah, and that's, it's important to f- see art that way because it's easy for us to get caught up even today in the idea of the artist as the genius, is the artist as this, has some access to truth that nobody else has access to and can teach us these wonderful things. We see that with like the way that a lot of the indie art move, the indie movie movements have been, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you guys like, you know, Star Wars and um, the Marvel movies. But man, what about this filmmaker? You know, he's doing really important stuff, right? And he's really speaking truths that the few and the few that have access to it, they're the ones, the smart, the intelligentsia. It's a sort of Gnosticism. It's just nasty because Shakespeare was for the people. 
Shakespeare wanted to entertain and make money. And he became very rich doing it because he was able to retire early, moved back to Stratford-upon-Avon, and as far as we know, died because he drank too much at his daughter's wedding with Ben Johnson. (laughs) So he was a guy who liked to party. He was a guy who liked to have, he had a lot of joy in his life and success too. He bought quite a few properties in Stratford-upon-Avon, was successful. You know, he would have been more along the lines of someone who, one of these indie art directors who landed big and got to direct a Star Wars film. (laughs) So. And thought that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to him. And then retired because they had all the money. money. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he would have been more along those lines, right? Instead of a Francis Ford Coppola who made his big movies early on, but then went crazy towards Mm -hmm. the end of his life. (laughs) A a few other things. Well, maybe just one other thing that I can think of. It's just fun to note, or at least important to note, is that in his will, he did leave his wife his second best bed. That's often looked at as a sign that he had a troubled relationship with his wife. So this goes also back to the sonnets because he wrote a lot about the dark lady and also about a young man in the sonnets. And so people are saying, well, he had troubled sexuality. Maybe he was a homosexual. All these things that we like to speculate about Shakespeare. It's important to note that the second best bed, it's always important to keep things in context. And the second best bed in a home would have always been the marriage bed because the first best bed would have been the bed that you, pre- you reserved for guests, right? You wanted them to have the best, but actually the best bed in the home would have been your second best bed, which was the bed that you shared with your wife. And so likely it was a very sentimental and romantic gesture in his will to leave it to his wife. Well, or even just to say it, like yeah. it would have been hers anyway. Yeah. But the fact that he pointed that but out. But the fact like, that he that he put it in there was a, a romantic gesture. It's just the one sort of Shakespearean gesture in that whole will, which is actually for the layman, pretty boring. Like right. as wills generally yeah. are. Yeah. But Shakespeare found a way to get a little bit of Shakespearean beauty into it. By the way, so. every time we say the word will, I'm tempted to make a bunch of terrible puns. And <laughs> I just wanted to point, point out that if William Shakespeare was here, he would give into that temptation and he would make. Oh, he would be all over. Yeah, he would be all over, all over that. Yeah. Yeah. The will is will, will, will. In fact, there's one of the, I can't remember which sonnet it is, but he talks about like shaking spears and mm-hmm. the will and stuff like that. So he's like, yeah, he's yeah. all over that. If you knew half the things he was making puns about in those plays, you'd be pretty scandalized because yeah. some yeah. of those are pretty body. He is a dirty man. <laughs> yeah. So he was, he would have been more along the lines of like, a, who's that? Um, oh, who's that? Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen, but like director who does all the Seth oh, Rogen movies. Judd Apatow. Judd Apatow, yeah. <laughs> and some of his humor, he would have been very Judd Apatowish for his age. Apatow, that, yeah. that actually, if you want a lesson in it, just go and read the first scene of Romeo and Juliet and do the work of figuring out what those jokes are actually talking read about. Read the footnotes in Brandon's. Yeah, yeah, my Arden editions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, read the, the best Shakespeare editions. Arden editions. <laughs> yeah. Terrible editions. Yep. They're the, the greatest editions. Yeah. One line of Shakespeare text and like. A whole page of footnotes. Yep. Yeah. It's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's so great good. to have to turn a page every four seconds if you want to <laughs> yeah. read a work. Oh, this is an hour long play, hour and a half long play. It's going to take me a year of my life to read through this. Mm-hmm. Come on, guys. But at least I'll understand on, the guys. dirty jokes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're an insider now. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of got the Shakespeare context condensed down. Yeah. There's yeah. a good well, version of it. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> but those are the Those are the highlights. Those are the... Those are the things that we really need to say. Um, the, the one thing that we haven't said that we've we've said before, we've made the case or attempted to make the case that not only did Shakespeare, would Shakespeare have seen himself as a craftsman, he would have been seen and would have seen himself as one of the lowliest of craftsmen mm-hmm. because he works with 
things that are ethereal, right? Things that disappear, and that there'd be no expectation of preservation. And he's no, and he made a, no provision not, for it. Yeah, I mean, that's not, all the evidence you need there. Like Shakespeare did not ensure that Shakespeare lasted. Yeah, he didn't try to keep his plays around for anybody. It was just like he wrote for his generation, right, and yeah. the next generation would write for their generation, and it would just keep disappearing. And that was kind of the presumption and expectation. He wasn't building a piece of furniture that could be handed down or designing a building or anything like that that was going to be. It was much more like being a a gardener or a uh, fisherman or something like that. You provide food. It has its use. You provide entertainment. You come to the theater. It has its use. And once you've left, it's it's gone. It's done. Yeah. Well, you see that also in the cheerful appropriation that Shakespeare did of the people that came before him. I mean, they, you can find proto taming of the shrew type plays and proto history. And Shakespeare just took that stuff. Like their stuff was gone. My turn. Those guys were my dead. Spin on these stories. And I'll yeah. use the best of what those guys did. And I'm, I'm, I happen to be a genius, so I'll improve it. Yeah, tenfold. Yeah. But you can go back and trace the lineage and find the bad non-Shakespeare versions of a lot of these things, which have a lot of the ideas that he ended up using. Yeah. Well, and the point of mentioning that is we give a lot of airtime to the idea that art belongs in its place, in its Mm -hmm. proper place, and books belong in in their proper place. And a lot of, it's something we like to harp on because the kind of person who's going to find this podcast is going to typically be like us, the kind of person who's going to want to elevate books and literature and art far above uh, where it ought to be. Mm Mm-hmm. One of our, well, our live show that we did once was basically about this, right? Yes. The Shakespeare discussions we've had have been very influential in the way that we've thought about literature and the bookending. It's really helped me Mm -hmm. because I was the kind of guy for a long time who wanted to give art more place than it had. And it's actually helpful to realize that, you know, God did give us creativity. He did give us craft and he wants us to delight in it. Like he gave us the ability to look at the world and take pleasure in the sound of words and in language. And that's part of the beauties of theater, of poetry, things like that. But you can't let it be an idol. You can't let it take a place that it doesn't have. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and your stuff will get worse. If you want to be a writer, the best thing you can do is, is learn to be a craftsman. I think what we've seen over the course of the show is that the real true A-listers, the, the greatest of all time, the, the goats, they were people who just worked hard and actually didn't take it. All that, All that seriously. I mean, our favorites would be Shakespeare, Austin, Tolstoy. Tolstoy. And these were all people that cared and tried and had genius. But I don't think any of them were, I think even with Tolstoy, you could say he wasn't just setting out to write the great thing. Yeah, he wanted it to be good. He wanted it to be good. Yeah. But, but at the end he, of the day, his weird spiritual occupations and ideas actually. Yeah. And, and we'll talk more about this when we get to Dostoevsky. I'm liking the Brothers Karamazov just fine. Mm-hmm. But there is a big difference in the way they approach the story. Dostoevsky, it's all about look at Dostoevsky's philosophy and ideas and how he can show you Dostoevsky's philosophy and ideas. Yeah. And in the end, War and Peace, Anna Karenina, and they're bigger than Tolstoy. Right. Yeah. Because in the end, what he wants is for you to actually have some joy and pleasure while reading. Mm -hmm. And if you get away from that, if you start thinking that, like Dostoevsky, I think, thought, and other poets in the past have thought that your art can replace theology and your art can replace philosophy and all these sorts of things, or philosophy, whatever, anything can replace philosophy. But 
<laughs> um, Twiddling your thumbs. Yeah. iPhone ba- games. Bashing your head against a wall. <laughs> yeah. So, but if you think that art's going to do what only the Bible can do, then you're going to get yourself into some trouble. If you are humble and put it in its place, you're going to get moments of beauty and you are going to get moments of intense truth out of it too. Tolstoy gets it, right? Jane Austen has it and it's going to be all over Shakespeare too. My father has it. Yeah. You have that My power sister as well. Has it. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess the, the only... Sister. Sister. You have a twin sister. Uh, I, I guess the only point that we... The only other point that we usually say that we haven't said is reading a Shakespeare play is in fact the same as reading a screenplay and yeah, you're not actually getting the full fa- full effect if you're not watching well, this thing. One, performed. it's not possible to get the full effect because we're not getting it in context. Right. So we have to acknowledge that from the outset. We don't get it performed in the context it was meant to be performed in. We don't get it from actors who understand all of the nuances and can you know, give the right inflection to those jokes that, I mean, just sail over so many people's heads. Well, and people always, like, I, I really like The Hollow Crown, but... We don't get it with Shakespeare's direction. Yeah. You watch yeah. The Hollow Crown, and they have a lot of ideas about the material, and yeah. they are not all necessarily the same ideas that Shakespeare would have had about the material. They have their view of about war and about... It's not just... I'm not just bashing them for bringing their... I think you have to, actually you have to interpret the material. You just, yeah, well, how can you not? That's necessary, it's, right? It's, so it's yeah. always meant to be interpreted and yeah. it's going to have the interpretation of the director of the play and it's going to have the individual in- interpretations of each of the actors and actresses. Yes. All of that is part of what makes a play a play. Mm-hmm. And, and we've just been reading, uh, I don't kn- even know why or for what in what context, but we've been reading Colin Trevorrow's uh, screenplay for the third Star Wars movie, yes. Duel of the Fates. And... When you you read through it, and I mean, my goodness, you've got, first of all, it's probably just an early draft, mm-hmm. but second of all, you've got the actors, the actresses, the direction. There are so many different ways in reading this, this screenplay that it could be really great or it could be really terrible depending on how you know, any any given scene is pulled off. Well, and for, especially for, it's fascinating reading a Star Wars screenplay because A, the dialogue sucks. B, so much of it is like, and then the most amazing thing ever happens. And you're like, okay, right, cool. <laughs> I guess I can imagine that. But it's like the special effects artists are going to have a lot of say in whether this thing works, works or not. Yeah, and that's proper for a Star Wars <laughs> screenplay. Actually, they're not. It's not like they're falling yeah. down on their job. Yeah, there's a really. I've I've mentioned it before, but there's a really great essay by Walter Benjamin called The Storyteller, Mm -hmm. where he traces what's happened with the novel is that the novel has become intensely focused on, it's almost narcissistic in the sense that it's focused on the isolation of one reader with one author. Yeah. Right. And that before that you had the storyteller whose whole goal was to lose himself within a story that he also then lost a whole audience in as well. And so in other words, the pageantry. And so one thing to realize is with Shakespeare, like when he got influenced by the Elizabethan courts and stuff, there would have been a lot of pageantry on the stage and stuff. There would have been a lot of set pieces. Yeah. He had like, um, oh, I forget the famous set designer, but he would design some of Shakespeare's sets and stuff. And there's, it was meant to be a spectacle, right? Yeah. It was meant to be fun. It was meant to be engaging. And you lose a lot of that when you just try to read a Shakespeare play by yourself. You get some of it back when you try to read it with a group of people, but even then 
you get it you get it much more back when you have a director directing talented actors on a stage where you can actually see the way that Shakespeare wanted it to be seen and so yeah and and then you realize and have to realize that today if William Shakespeare is writing today he's he's writing screenplays maybe he's still writing poetry and novels too or whatever but the man was, if nothing else, a populist. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna take the the most awesome, exciting, fun, cool medium and all the fun, cool toys in that medium. He's gonna put them all to use. We give this priority to like the private reading experience mm-hmm. nowadays to art. Well, like William Wordsworth would have said, the the a moment of solitude where you reflect on these intense emotions, and like that's the only experience we really give a lot of priority to when it comes to like great literature. But that's not that's not even the only or even the best way to experience Shakespeare. Well, it's one of the interesting things about reading a Jane Austen novel is the relationship that those characters have to the written word is very communal. They'll read passages together for fun, you know, and yeah. so this character will be really good at interpreting this author that they all like. They'll read chunks of Shakespeare even. They'll but put on little let's, plays. Let's not let Mary have her turn to pick what to read and bore us all with her dumb philosophical treatise or whatever it is yeah. right and her one of her, her charming villain characters i don't remember which one because they all kind of run together one of the the wentworths or wickham's or whatever he's really good at Reading interpreting with real, with, with real and pathos and it's almost kind of a character flaw like he's so good at just entering into it in a way that's tips you off at about his duplicity a little bit but it, the only point i was making is it's just it's 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 exactly what Brandon's talking about in that it's not that one of those characters goes off with a novel by themselves. In fact, the one character that does that in Austin is the chick in Northanger Abbey, and she gets herself in trouble by having yeah. too personal and too intense of a relationship with her or books. It's what the one sister in Sensibility wants you to think that she does, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, those people get themselves into trouble. Yeah, or Mary. Mary's a great example yeah. of someone who's yeah. going off with books, and it's like, nope, you're dumb. Yeah, and so that prior that well, the narcissism that comes from that, mm-hmm. and we see it in the when art becomes that it becomes cold and dead. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff that came because of T. S. Eliot is cold and dead. If you try to read a poem in the New Yorker and or on Poetry Foundation today, none of it's any good because all of it's lost the life. So, anyways. Well, speaking of losing lives, we have gained a bunch of lives in the form of patronages. On our Patreon. Nicely done, Nathan. And Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I'm the Shakespeare of podcast tradition or uh, transitions, transitions, wouldn't you guys it, say? Yes. Yeah. I mean, you gave but, me that title, I think, earlier in this episode, but. Oh, you were, you were the Shakespeare of. <laughs> I'm, willing, I'm the, willing to give it back to you. You can man. be the Chris Marlowe. It's not fair. I think oh, you're being. Was I being too humble? Jake's the. We can maybe we won't say who's and who. We just know who is who. We'll just say we have the Marlowe, the Shakespeare, and the Ben Johnson nice. of podcast transitions. Nice. Of course, what I'm transitioning to is which of us is most likely to die from partying too hard at his daughter's wedding. <laughs> uh, that would be you. Oh, um, thanks. Let's see here. Where are the my list of patrons? What we're going to do is we're going to shout out our patrons. And Brandon, how do you get a patron shout out, a donor shout out? Well, you go to patreon.com forward slash the bookening and you give us money. That's right. At least $10 for a shout out. Yeah. Don't even think about a dollar or $2 or $3 or $4, five, six, seven, or eight or nine. Not even $9.99. It better be $10. If you want that shout out. If you just want to see great videos of Brandon 
talking about poetry or us hanging out behind the scenes, you can give five bucks for that. Maybe even a penny. I don't know. Is that a possibility? I don't, I don't know why you'd want to do that. Patreon would have to split the penny. And yeah, if you want to give us a penny personally, if you want to mail one in, like we'll, we'll take your pennies, I guess. Sure. I don't know. It's up to you guys and your accountant. Mm-hmm. If the postage is more than what you're sending, that seems weird to me. But hey, live and let live. That's my philosophy. All right, guys. Is that your philosophy? Like, no. I'd... Sum up your entire life philosophy right there. <laughs> I think if there's anyone that doesn't have that philosophy in this room, that's probably me. But okay, let's let our patrons live in this great segment called Donor Shoutouts. Where another we, great, another great transition. Right another there. great. You are earning that title. Transition. Uh, and speaking of great, <laughs> yeah, our patrons are great. And doing, keep, man, like, yeah, keep yeah. going, Nathan. Keep this going, yeah. It's like Shakespeare, man. <laughs> yeah. coming with. Eventually, you'll actually get us transition <laughs> metaphors and puns. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we know, Jake. Eventually, maybe Hamlet's just going to make his point and stop monologuing. It's the greatest <laughs> monologue in the history of the world, man. You got me there. Yeah. Buddy. You just keep on transitioning. Yep. Benedict Cumberbatch gives a pretty good one, too. Have you seen his? Yeah, I have. You showed yeah. it to me, actually. Yeah, he brings a whole new character and tone to it that I had never seen before. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. speaking of characters, <laughs> some yeah. of our Patreons are real characters. Yeah, that's right. Uh, all right. And <laughs> now we're going to shout them out. <laughs> Whee! <laughs> oh, brother. Hey, what was the catchphrase that we came up with last time that was going to be our, our T-shirt? Uh, it's... Thought Christmas, y'all. Thought Christmas, it's, y'all. It's Thought Christmas, y'all. That's that, right. That is a shirt. That's that is amazing. a shirt. That's a great shirt. And we should try and work that catchphrase in more often. So it's it, Thought Christmas, y'all. It's Thought Christmas, y'all. What's up? It's Thought Christmas, y'all. <laughs> 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 I don't know why you cock a gun after saying that, but the sign of a great catchphrase is that you can cock a gun after saying it and it sounds cool. Terrifyingly right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. So. Have it your way. <laughs> yep. Speaking of having it your it's way, the, yeah. <laughs> it's the right one, baby. Uh-huh. I'm loving it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo quiero Taco Bell. <laughs> uh, and and speaking- You guys went straight to fast food. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <I awesome. do. laughs> Our minds run in certain directions, yeah. Jake. <laughs> oh, man. Speaking of Taco Bell, some of these dinner. patrons gave us a ringing endorsement. Oh, um, oh <laughs> it's getting better. Yeah. It's, it's getting better. <laughs> All right. Let's shout out these these patrons. What I want you guys to do. Oh, boy. You know what? Let's bring back an old classic. We've never done this. We've never repeated a formula. But one of my favorite things we ever did was, yeah. <laughs> and I don't even remember who was standing for who. Maybe you guys remember. One of you was on was Team Dracula, and the other two was Team Frankenstein. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> what? <laughs> and <laughs> Brandon, I want you to say... Dracula. I, I want you to defend Dracula, and Jake, I want you to defend Frank. We just say their name, right? Like we're trying to <laughs> yeah, defend that's them. What we did. You, yeah. you do whatever you want. I just, that's what's going to happen after I say each page. You don't have to say their names. You just say Dracula. Or Frank. Okay. All right. Robert and Rhonda, the lovebirds. Frankenstein. Dracula. The artful Anthony Dodger. Frankenstein. Dracula. Little Anthony's cigar store. Dracula. Frankenstein. The immortal Chelsea E. Frank Dracula. I just want to stop and say, I'm so glad I went back to this well. Uh, Jimmy Beam and Little Annie Oakley. Dracula. Lily of the Valley. Dracula. Andrew Nestor, the Lovebirds. Frankenstein. Dracula. The Keith Master. Frankenstein. Dracula. David's Mighty Man. Frankenstein. Dracula. John and Jill and Little Frankenstein. Baby Dracula. 
Jane Katie, who oh, are cold in love, cheese, and also C.S. Lewis, including Till We Have Faces. Dracula. Fairy Princess Bergen of Wonder and Happiness Mother Path. <laughs> Dracula. <laughs> Council Prime Adam. Dracula. Dracula. Jeremy the Dark Hooded Lord of Death. Frankenstein. Dracula. Dracula. Oh, maybe they're becoming friends. Nathan, not me. Frankenstein. Dracula. Maya. 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 Dracula. Frankenstein. Ryan the Red Avenger. Dracula. Frankenstein. Dracula. 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 No don't even know. Many, 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 Sweet Jamie, sunshine. I'm losing my voice. Tyler, the keeper of eternal darkness, and Gilroy, the keeper of eternal light. Cold Steel. Ooh, you beat me that time. That was maybe your first time. I think that was my first. Down with the What was that? You are a great patron. Jack Are you turning into Frankenstein? John Wayne, the one named Captain Tennille, his mate. Oh man, Dragon Allies. Oh, got got another one <laughs> out of like fifty. Hey, Frankenstein. Oh man, Eli. Dracula. The Scarlet Pilgrim. Eli. Frankenstein. Dracula. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Uh, Booking today, produced by Dracula, executive produced by Dracula and Frankenstein. Till next time, Frankenstein, <laughs> Dracula, <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash the booking.